0: I'll say something about Michael's that, you know, and I know you would do this too. If I'm anywhere in the vicinity of a used bookstore, I will case it. I don't remember a time when I have seen a Leonard Michael's book on a used bookstore shelf. And my theory is, is that that's because people who bought them at the time, and I don't, you know, these weren't big print runs, I don't believe, held on to them. And in fact, I feel very guilty. And I, I, if, if Maxine Chernoff, my old boss and colleague, hears this podcast, and she might, <laughs> she might recall that I borrowed uh, "Going Places." No, no, I borrowed. I, I would have saved them if I could. Hardcover, FSG, beautiful book. I borrowed it from her office one day, and she's she was always very generous. She's like, "Sure, take it, take it, take it," and I. I guess I took that too much to heart because I still have it. And that was probably 10, 10, 12 years ago. Maxine, if you want it, I will return it. I'm going to confess. I'm going to write her an email.
1: This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Leonard Michaels wrote that the ability to tell a story like the ability to carry a tune is nearly universal and as mysteriously natural as language. Importantly, he added, though I've met few people who can't tell stories, it has always seemed to me they really can but refuse to care enough or fear generosity or self-revelation or misinterpretation or intimacy." When you think about the Nachman stories by Leonard Michaels, it's easy to see that he didn't fear generosity or self-revelation or intimacy—not a bit. The Nachman stories are about one Raphael Nachman, an austere, unassuming mathematician, a sensible, simple guy, quite different from the panoply of characters in Michaels' earlier story collections. And anyone familiar will find the tone to be different, the mediated prose. Nachman is aware of his flaws and frailties, but he's okay with that. We find in the stories moments when he is in awe of his surroundings, of places, and other people. He's someone who likes what he likes. An inciting incident moves him to try something out of character. It changes him, some misdeed or unkindness but he remains essentially Nachman. Elsewhere, Leonard Michaels described that a central problem in storytelling is how to make transitions into transformations. He said that transitions are about logic, sincerity, boredom, but that transformations belong to art. He said that the most impressive stories include transformations where nothing changes. Here again, with Leonard Michael's story, we see how true this idea is, how it emerges so plainly in a story like cryptology, where Nachman is out of his element, in a new city, and then thrust into a very unusual and unlikely situation. There are many shifts in the story, explosive ones and unexpected ones that seem impossible to come back from. But Nachman returns to himself in ways as unexpected, if, as Leonard Michaels said, the most impressive stories include transformations where nothing changes, cryptology is truly sublime. Here now, Peter Orner and I discuss cryptology by Leonard Michaels, and stay tuned for a bonus story by Leonard Michaels.
0: You know, he he was one of these story writers who, um, whose books I think meant a lot to certain people at a certain time, and. Uh, and then they didn't for a long time and he i think he was having he had trouble getting published i believe i mean i, I don't know much about him i just know he was I, I think he wasn't an easy easy guy you know his talent was enormous and almost hard to contain i think and i i think he fell out of print and then he was brought back by um a san francisco publisher called melville house wonderful publisher and they published him to the end of his life and Literally it felt like the day he died, the day he died, FSG brought out like all the books again. And so the collected, the essays came out a couple years after that, the novel Men's Club, which I've never read, uh, and and uh and the all and Sylvia, uh, which is um if you call it a novel, I don't know what you call it, it's probably his best work, I think, in some ways, next to the stories. Um, they brought that out too. So anyway, I I don't this is by way of nothing.
1: I did come across a couple of things that said that that there's this whole sort of cult of Leonard Michaels. Some, right. There's something to your idea that people hang on to their copies of the books. You know, it's this idea of, I know you understand this, like you want everybody to know about Leonard Michaels, and yet you don't want to tell anybody about Leonard Michaels.
0: I mean, it's kind of like what Andre de Buss said to me when I said, hey, I, I saw you in the back of Gina Barial's book. How come you never mentioned her to me? And he's like, because you some people you gotta find out on your own. I think he said something along those lines. Yeah. He said, How could you not know her? You don't need you shouldn't need me to mm-hmm. to find Gina Burial for you. And so maybe it's the same thing with Michaels. But I also <laughs> think we're proprietary. <laughs> yeah.
1: But um, I don't know anybody really who really, really knows about Leonard Michaels and has read his body of work.
0: I don't know, i I don't know. I think I think he's you know, he's a he's a bit taboo, you know, I mean, yes, yeah, I find it hard to to teach certain stories of Michaels, to be honest, you know, yeah. and uh, you know, michaels he can be offensive. I mean, I'm just saying like you know he can you know he he's of a certain male writer of a certain generation, absolutely. That said, you know, the sentences are extraordinary. And so, maybe we should just get into the work. I think what happens sometimes is you, you end up talking about the person. You know what I mean? And I think I don't know a thing about Michael's. You know, maybe there should be a biography of him. I know there's, you know, certain friends of his, Wendy Lesser and other people have written. I, I think Robert Haas has written about him because they all sort of moved in the same circles in Berkeley in the 80s. I guess there's a lot of Michael's stories out there. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's best to get into it.
1: Yeah, I and I agree with this idea of just, just to have picked up cryptology cold the other day when you mentioned it and, and didn't go back to reread anything and was just kind of like, was that the guy who, oh, I don't know, but let me just read the story and just sort of read it cold with nothing else. It was a very wonderful experience. And then, of course, I dove in and now I know maybe too many things, but...
0: Right, but the story stands on its own. And I mean, you know, part of this group of late stories that he... I mean, I think, you know, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about doing Michael's. He had this like late surge right before his death in 2003, where he published a whole kind of a a group of these Naquan stories about a mathematician from Santa Monica. And what I think... About them, and you know, I I think we should talk about the story itself. But I think like there's something about the Nachman stories that really shows a writer who transformed into another writer at a, at a certain point in his life. I mean, you know, we throw around Chekhov a lot, right? We've mm-hmm. done a show. You know, it's dangerous to throw around Chekhov, but my feeling in reading the last couple of paragraphs of cryptology is that, you know, he went back to Chekhov as some people do, you know, or maybe he never left him, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I hear the, the the that late Chekhov-ishness, but that sounds so pompous, doesn't it?
1: No, it doesn't. Well, I want to hear <laughs> if you can share in a little while or as we get there, as we get to these points, why you feel that way, I think, those things will emerge, but maybe an obvious one is the um the third person narration. I don't know.
0: Yes, it's that, but it's all it's also this sort of like the narrator, whoever that amorphous being is, also is like so close in sometimes. Yeah. Like gets really, really close. And it's really the last paragraph when. And I don't know if we, you know, I, maybe I'll just say it now. The last paragraph, there's this, there's this shift where he he's listening to um, uh, a man playing guitar in, in Washington Square Park, and the tune was a Bassanova, haunting something like a blues, only more finely nuanced and not at all macho. That doesn't sound like Chekhov to me, but this, the rhythm was subtly engaging, and it seemed to caress Nachman's heart. He thought again about phoning Helen Ferris. He'd apologize, certainly for not waiting until she and her husband came out of the bathroom. Vaguely, he supposed that they might have a lot to say to him. His thoughts became still more vague as they surrendered to the bossa Nova. And soon he wasn't thinking at all, only following the tune. It made a lovely, sinuous shape and then made it again and again, always a little differently and yet always the same as the rhythm carried its exquisite sadness towards infinity. There's a certain, um, the story's kind of scalding. And then it doesn't, it doesn't end there. And, And that's makes it, makes it different. Than even even some of um, Michael's early great stories.
1: I, I'm so struck by this this synesthesia of that this talking about the sense of the shape of the music right using one's one sense to describe another sense. The other thing is, I printed out a copy of the story from the New Yorker from 2003, the year he died, and it does not have it does not include the penultimate paragraph. Numbers have no history. He yearned for his office and his desk and the window that looked out on the shining Pacific.
0: Read the next sentence.
1: He'd never gone swimming in the prodigious, restless, teeming, alluring thing, but he loved the changing light on its surface and the sounds it made in the darkness. He didn't yearn for its embrace. You're right. I mean, that's just beautiful. And I was thinking about, um, well, okay, I'm going to de- continue to derail us if I don't let you just talk. Let's talk about the story from the beginning, maybe.
0: All right. So you have a, it's fairly simple. A mathematician has come to New York for a conference. Apparently he was invited by some company that, gave, that paid for his trip out to New York from California. And um, he's at this conference and he's supposed to have an interview with this company that has paid his way and when the interview time for the interview comes no one meets him at the hotel no one calls no one leaves a message <laughs> so he is on this all expense paid trip to new york where he's from um and where his uh, father lives in brooklyn and he ends up kind of being uh you know dismayed and a little bit distraught that that he wasn't important enough to even be canceled upon you know they didn't say we got to cancel the interview or something came up or whatever they literally just blew him off even though they paid for everything so while he's thinking about this he uh he he's wandering around manhattan and he um is is someone calls his name and it's a a woman who um apparently knows him very well and is ecstatic in his mind to see him Her name is Helen Ferris. Helen Ferris obviously took great pleasure in listening to Nachman. And yet, in the center of her rapt, almost delirious focus, Nachman saw a curious blank spot, as if she were not conversing so much as savoring. Her brown eyes devoured his, and her smile suggested a rictus in its unrelieved tension and shape. The intensity in her alarming red lipstick made Nachman think she wanted to eat him. And it goes on like <laughs> that. But but you, the reader starts to realize even before we're told it, that he has no idea who this person is. And God knows we've all been there, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and anyway, uh, Helen Ferris invites him to dinner and then gives him her apartment key and says, without even asking if you you know, he just she just gives him the key, apparently, and says, you know, come over for dinner with me and my husband. And uh, and, and it's kind of exciting. And he's, he carries her key around with him all afternoon. And then finally, he does uh, doesn't end up at the apartment of, of someone he doesn't know who it is.
1: And so you think about what the little bit that we know about him so far, even if you've not read another Nachman story, is that this is a, a little bit out of character. I mean, even just the way he's engaging with Helen.
0: Totally. We yeah. know
1: we can pick up a lot about him. I'm very interested in some of the things he he's thinking, like where, where it says not been wondered fleetingly if Helen Ferris thought he was an idiot. There is this idea of his um insecurity about not just the fact that he doesn't remember her, but then also how now that she has all this information about him and this conference and the fact that he was not met by whoever paid for the trip, and
0: right, right, that's that's an important point. But yeah, he he, he blurs out that he wasn't the story about not being met at the hotel, and how you know, and and you know, he it's clear that he's distraught about it.
1: Yes, the thing about um, no Joe Schmo, somebody anonymous wanted to interview me for a job. I have a job. I'm not looking for another one. You can tell. He's, he is concerned about how he appears to her. And then he does go to the apartment. So I, I want to ask you a question about the apartment part. Is it funny to you?
0: Uh, it's about as funny to me as it is to him. It's not funny. It's it's horrible. I don't know if we can give away everything. It's I mean, it's hilarious and also deadly not funny. I don't always laugh when I read Michael's, even when he's comic. He has a deadly com- sense of comedy, I think. And 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 he, I think he knows what, what what might be funny to certain people is not funny to the person experiencing it. And I think the story is so close to the person experiencing it that it isn't funny, that it's cruel. He gets there and he's in the apartment and the, the couple is apparently in the shower together. He's in there. <laughs> He's come into the apartment and, and not only are they in the shower together, but they are clearly and audibly talking about him and what a loser he is. I mean, it's, it's just horrific. I mean, you could, why don't you quote from it?
1: <laughs> well, the, so the dialogue between, uh, Benjamin and Helen goes like this, um, in the shower, I don't want to talk. I don't want to have to talk to him alone. Oh, for Christ's sake, you can talk to him until I come out. Fix him a drink. Turn on the TV. Watch the ball game. Men like sports. You won't even have to talk to him. Be nice for once in your fucking life. Hey, hey, hey. I'm supposed to be nice. Like I invited the schmuck to the apartment. I'll pick up the check at dinner, baby. But that's where it ends. This is your affair. Don't start with the affair business. He's not my type. You have types. I'm always nice to your friends, Benjamin, even when they bore me to death. Friend, you said you didn't even he didn't even recognize you. So what? He's drifty. Not your average New York cocksmith, like some persons I could name. I'll remind him who I am at dinner. I'll be sitting there for Christ's sake. He'll die. He won't know I told you anything. Besides, he probably doesn't remember that either. He's practically certifiable. I think his fly was unzipped. Don't make me jealous. Helen Ferris laughed. What's the guy's name, Knockman? What's wrong with knockman I didn't say there was anything wrong with it. <laughs> He's listening. Nachman is standing there listening to all this with the key in his hand, with the apartment key in his hand.
0: Right. Right.
1: And now he has to think quickly. What should he do? Confront them, leave the key, leave, get out of there. What? What is he going to do? But I do want to say that the elevator right up with the the three walls of mirrors yeah. Uh, that's such a beautiful detail. Uh,
0: yes. Those mirrors come back at the end too. Yes. As if he's going to leave part of himself there. But yeah. just to go back to, like, it's so interesting. Like we think one thing about an interaction and the person we have had that interaction with a couple hours before thinks something entirely different. And that is the stone cold truth. And yet we never seem to know it, you know? Uh, and Noakman just gets it in the face, and he. So yeah, you know, what would you do? I'd I'd get the fuck out of there, and I'd slam the door or whatever, right?
1: But yeah. Noakman
0: does, I think, what I would actually do. <laughs> you know, not the thing I would do in in my mind when I'm judging Noakman. I feel like I might do exactly what he does, which is he's tiptoeing around. He doesn't want them to know that he can that that he can hear them, and then he thinks about leaving. Of course, and he's like, you know, but he, he couldn't simply walk out the door. If they heard the door shut behind him, they'd feel terrible knowing Nachman had heard them. Why should he care? And of course, we say, why should he care? And then the next sentence is two words. Nochman cared. The, the fact that Nachman still cares is pretty universal in a way. I think I think we'd we'd rather have this not be out there you know what I mean? So, so it might be easier to just have this couple come out and like, Oh, hi, Nachman. Let's have dinner you know, and pretend it didn't happen, which is what I think he's sort of maybe planning to do at that point, but then things get even more crazy.
1: Yes. And this comes on the heels of this late October weather description where, where it says, um, it felt summery, but as the afternoon wore on, Nachman detected a quality in the breeze that was too poignant for summer, had too fine an edge. Another year was nearly over. Nachman liked the poignancy, could almost see it in the changing light. The sun would soon be lower in the sky. So it's like now it's getting darker and colder, but there's a poignancy and there's a beauty, but then there's darkness. And cold would invade the streets and challenge people's energy, give steel to their thoughts. So I just love how he's on this adventure and he's going to go. And then this thing happens from like one second to the next as he's walking over there. And then he starts to think about, um, from a certain point of view, there was even an adventure in being stood up at the cryptology conference invited all expenses paid three thousand to come three thousand miles only to find nobody gives a damn whether he came or not no explanation no so you just see like the disintegration of his I don't know his his good feeling about being on an adventure about about you know about to do something kind of out of character then the truth was that Nachman was enraged He had smiled as he talked to Helen Ferris. He hadn't let her see his anger. She might have thought that he was angry at her. So there's all of that sort of broiling underneath the surface too, I think. And then only a fool would accept an invitation to meet somebody who had no name. Nachman was a fool. That was now an established fact. Good. He felt much better. You know, I looked up the meaning of the word Nachman. It means compassionate and sensitive.
0: Oh. my uh, my childhood doctor was a very very bald uh Dr Nachman um wow. Dr Na- Dr nachman and Dr Gumbiner had a practice together I went to nachman my whole my whole childhood Dr oh, wow! And he, was, he was compassionate actually hmm. um, I you know I don't know if are we doing justice to this story. <laughs> I don't I'm
1: know. not. I'm. I, 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 I no, knew this I was going to happen. I'm sorry.
0: No, no. I think I think this is a hard story to like. We end up being overly hyperbolic, or I don't know. It's just there's something so quietly it's, gorgeous about. It is. You know how how just like he's just a guy trying to trying to live through his trip. He's not <laughs> somebody who wants to he wants to be there
1: you can boil this story down so easily and outline it in, you know, five bullets. And, and why, why would anybody do that? But I mean, you could say, Oh, well, it's about this guy and this woman comes up to him and then he goes to their apartment and they're talking about him. And then the cat does this terrible thing. And then, um, you know, and then he leaves and he listens to some guitar music at, at the park, the end. That's not the story, of course. It's there's just so much how how to talk about how to talk about even even broaching the idea of the unexamined life. It has been said that the unexamined life isn't worth living. Nachman wasn't against examining his life, but then what was a life? And that's kind of what he's doing. I just I just love the way that he. Is this math guy? And we have to talk about the fact that he's a mathematician. He's a math guy. And this just sort of maybe superficially we can think of him in that sort of mathematician way. Like, there's no way this guy's gonna be bothered by what these people are doing. He probably wouldn't even have gone to their apartment and let himself in. That's that would be so out of character. But that's not true.
0: Like you said, this story can be boiled down, it can be talked about and we can't get to it, right? And I think, you know, we've done, I mean, this is a hard one to to capture because it's just all in the sentences, but there's one thing that I might say that is truly horrific about this and that is overhearing people talk about you. And the line is, he'd never before overheard people talking about him. It was unnerving. He'd been radically objectified, like an insensate rock while his soul floated in the air. A general hurt spread within his chest and began to seep like poison throughout his body. I mean, this is something you'd never forget. You know what I mean? And you know, and 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 you're lucky in your life if you don't go through something like this. If you don't hear what people said about you. But you know, that we sometimes do, right? I guess it's just that that real time. Like he already know, it means, you know, Nachman already feels like a loser. And now he's for no fault of his own. He thought it'd be kind of fun to have dinner with people. He didn't know. And then it turns out that they're talking about him too. Nachman can't catch a break. He can't catch a break. And I think to me, that feels a little bit like, like this is a story about a writer capturing how that felt. And I feel like Michael's a, probably knew a lot of what it felt like to be to be dissed like this.
1: I agree. And I I do want to say one thing about that. It's it's it is horrific what he experiences overhearing what th- these horrible things that they're saying about him. And they're not horrible in that they're just mean.
0: They're also fairly ordinary mean. I mean I could see myself being one of the couple talking about somebody.
1: Yes, and he's he does talk about the, uh, what did he say, the, um, let me see, oh, oh their conjugal solidarity. I
0: he's- <laughs> this is a couple who does stuff together. They take yeah. hours together. They travel together. They have dinner together. You know, he's, yeah, and, and you know, and the last thing anyone would want is their private conversations be heard by anybody else.
1: Yeah. They've ganged up on him. I mean, and the the thing that's really interesting to me is he doesn't really remember Helen and he doesn't know Benjamin. So then here are two people who don't even know him saying these things about him. It makes it somehow worse. Yeah. But the thing I love about this story is what you read at the beginning, which comes at the end, where we see him sort of returning to himself the way the way he was even when he was walking to the apartment in in his own head and in his own mind mathematical or not he thinks about being back in his own space and he's thinking about the music he's doing I would be so distracted I'd be walking back to the hotel so I could get in the bed and meet candy and watch tv and feel sorry for myself
0: I think it's right on i think it's I, th- I just think that that's what this story does it, it makes you understand i mean I, I think there's no one who couldn't find themselves on every side of the story that's exactly. what I exactly yes you know
1: that that idea uh when you first see that line the rhythm was suddenly engaging and it seemed to caress nachman's heart you see that line out of context and you say oh no but you read it in context right there and you say, oh my God, that's it. He he just returns to, to himself, to, to what he, what he is about.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, it just, again, you know, compared to the somewhat pyrotechnics of his other stories, you know, this, I think that's what's so beautiful about the way the story lands ultimately it's not it's not about what happens in the apartment you know it, yeah. it's it's uh, you know about a about those last paragraphs that second to last paragraph that you read in, in, the, in the final paragraph i think it just all comes down to just you know kind of like this is uh the life that you know we live <laughs> you know yeah. and there he is listening to some beautiful music in washington square park where
1: he does say it made a lovely sinuous shape made it again and again, always a little different and yet always the same as right. the rhythm carried its exquisite sadness toward infinity.
0: It's a life. It's, it's a, a short story tragedy that we didn't get more Nachman stories, but this, this is the final one. You know, this is the end. And that's the, that's the line exquisite sadness towards infinity. I mean, there's one thing I wanted to mention that we didn't talk about. And that's when, when uh he says to helen ferris when he sees her on the street he's like you know I, I decided i would take the take the interview because you know it might be fun to be a millionaire i fancy myself buying things like a dishwasher but i don't work for money you know what i mean my salary check pays my bills i work like most people not to waste my life and then he talks about santa monica he goes on <laughs> and on. he starts really kind of opening up to helen ferris who he doesn't remember and and then she says you don't own a dishwasher <laughs> so, and then and then finally, there is this line that I wanted to point out that I didn't yet, and that is about remembering. He says, dinner was a few hours away. Nachman continued walking aimlessly, trying to remember. How do you try to remember? You make yourself passive, receptive, available. If it comes, it comes. A strange kind of trying. That's a, just a, a really beautiful um, set of lines. That is beautiful. So.
1: But you know, as you're talking, it's making me think about how in each of the Nachman stories, there is a, always a moment where it's Nachman kind of saying something akin to. And I accepted the airplane ticket and the the hotel room and this all expenses paid trip because why not? There's always that kind of moment where he's doing something out of He's doing something that's beyond uh, maybe some preconceived notion that we might have about this math guy, about this yeah. mathematician who's all alone, who only works to pay his bills, who doesn't seem to do anything else, who doesn't you know, have um, anyone else in his life that we know of. He does it in all the stories. He does something like that in all the stories. And you know what? It's always imbued with... Reaching out to somebody else.
0: Yeah, like a, like what you said, compassion, meaning document, That that can't be a mistake, and the, the, just the humanness of it, yeah. and and just somebody who's just kind of settled into a life that is a life. Period. You know, and and but I think you're right to suggest that to read this story in conjunction with the others is a wonderful experience. So yeah, we should just recommend that. I guess
1: he's so. Happy with himself and his life, and then he does other new things, and the world slaps him around for a second, and then somehow he re- he can recover, and give it another chance in the next story. Right. <laughs> Not to boil it down, but yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, I, I think we could do a quick murderous I, I think I'd I think I'd start um, with uh, uh, the the opening paragraph. All right, so and this is a this is a story that sort of blasts off on takeoff, right? I mean, this is this is as Michael's as it gets, <laughs> and it's as good as it gets. When my Uncle Mo dropped dead of a heart attack, I became expert in the subway system. With a nickel, I'd get to Queens, twist and zoom to Coney Island, twist again towards the George Washington Bridge, beyond which was darkness. I wanted proximity to darkness, strangeness. Who doesn't? the poor in spirit, the ignorant and frightened. My family came from Poland, then never went any place until they had heart attacks. The consummation of years in one neighborhood, a black Cadillac corpse inside. We should have buried Uncle Mo where he shuffled away his life in the kitchen or toilet under the linoleum near the coffee pot. Anyhow, they were dropping on Henry Street and Cherry Street, blue lips. The previous winter, it was cousin Charlie, 45 years old. Mo, Charlie, Adam, Adele. Family meant a punch in the chest, fire in the arm. I didn't want to wait for it. I went to Harlem, the polo grounds, far rock away, thousands of miles on nickels, mainly underground. Tenements watched me go day after day, fingering nickels. One afternoon, I stopped to grind my heel against the curb, Melvin and Arnold Bloom appeared, then Harold Cohn. Melvin said, You step in dog shit? Grinding was my answer. Harold Cohn said, The rabbi's home. I saw him on Market Street. He was walking fast. Oily Arnold, 11 years old, began to urge, Let's go up to our roof. The decision waited for me. I considered the roof. The view of industrial Brooklyn, the battery ships in the river, bridges, towers and the rabbi's apartment. All right, I said, we didn't giggle or look to one another for moral signals. We were running. That's it. That's this sort of just so much momentum in this paragraph. Uh, uh, My family came from Poland, then never went any place until they had heart attacks. I mean, you could bronze that. So it's just and it's a story that hurdles hurdles to its conclusion. It's so, it's so tiny and short.
1: But there's that action and that I'll say violence. I mean, that physicality there it is. Yes. And I mean, even if we were to trace uncle Mo and my family's from Poland and the things that are familiar and close to them and how they will never go anywhere. They never went anywhere else. And then, there's just nothing but movement. There's just nothing but momentum from those few lines down all the way to the end of that very long paragraph. Yes. Yeah. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah. And you know, it's a story basically about these kids watching the rabbi and his wife have sex in the day and they're, they're on a roof across the way and slightly above, but they have to climb up a number of stories to get to this place to sit and watch where they've done this before and that's why they're running and uh <laughs> you know it but there's this paragraph in the middle of the second page the brooklyn navy yard with destroyers and aircraft carriers the statue of liberty putting the sky to the torch the dull remote skyscrapers of wall street and the empire state building were among the wonders we dominated our view of the holy man and his wife on their living room couch and floor on the bed in their bedroom could not be improved, unless we got closer. But 50 feet across the air was right. We heard their phonograph and watched them dancing. We couldn't hear the gratifications or see the pimples. We smelled nothing. We didn't want to touch. And then the next paragraph after that, for a while I watched them. Then I gazed beyond into shimmering nullity, gray, blue, and green murmuring over rooftops and towers. I had watched them before. I could tantalize myself with this brief ocular perversion, the general cleansing nihil of a view. This was a beginning of philosophy. I indulged in ambience and space like eons. So what if my uncle Mo was dead? I was philosophical and luxurious. There's this incredible shifting away from the, this what he calls the primal scene of watching these two. He's seen it before. So now he's sort of waxing poetical to the sky. It's ridiculous and funny and, and also, you know, incredibly beautifully done, beautifully pulled off. And you see this kid and that could be the story. And of course, it's not. <laughs> the story t- it takes a very tragic turn. And then it's over. Sort of because the last paragraph, the last couple of paragraphs are like in, generally he like in the Michael story are the you know are sort of unsurpassable. Yeah, it's gonna be hyperbolic. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that paragraph for a while I watched them, then I gazed that. That's the one I underlined and highlighted. That's this character who could be looking at what all the other boys are looking at, which is the rabbi and his wife. And he, he's, he's not, he's, you're right. He's being philosophical. He's, he's being sort
0: of. Also looking back at that too. I mean, he's, you know, he's. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, you
1: know, he yeah. No, but he does say, well, how ma- how many times had we dissolved stickball games when the rabbi came home? Right. This is something that they've done before, scrambling up the ladder, etc. We risked life itself to achieve this eminence. I looked at the rabbi and his wife. Today she was a blonde. So, but there's but that moment that you read that particular section to me is so much about this character. It's not just this, you know, flat nothing kid. Right, that was involved in mean, this terrible.
0: I mean, thing. you know, he, he he's he's there, you know, and so, but you know, I I think it's sort of a it's a head fake, right? Because he is looking at her, and he is, well, he does. This, you know, and so you know, but 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 he's a kid who also has multitudes in him. And I mean, there's, exactly. there's there's different sides to him. Exactly. But he's a kid. He's watching watching this. They're watching this. These two you know chase each other around the room and sing and, and there's music and you know and and, and you know and and Harold Cohn is masturbating and the other kid I mean this you know the whole thing is there's mayhem in this scene. Yes. You know? Uh and a short bearded man, you know, balls affling cock shuddering like a springboard rumba one, two, three, ole, via choo choo. I mean it's, it's all you know it's all it's all there. It's all there, you know, and, and yes, the Statue of Liberty and yes, the uh, Uncle Mo is dead. <laughs> I was philosophical and luxurious. You could think you could you could say that's in a ridiculous sentence. But then when you when you get the short bearded man sentence, it's it's not ridiculous. It's you know, it's I think in, in this world they can coexist.
1: Yes. And the, there's this interesting thing that he does with um she on the other hand yes she on the other hand was somewhat reserved a shift in one lush hip was total rumba he was mr life she was dancing he was a naked man she was what she was in the garment of her soft essential self he was snapping clapping hopping to the beat the beat lived in her visible music her lovely self except for the wig also, a watch band that desecrated her wrist, but it gave her a bit of the whorish. She never took it off.
0: That's okay. nice. It's Michael's. There's Michael's therapy. It gave her a bit of a whorish. are like, you know, part of me was like, did, did, that, did that line have to be there? You know, that's how that's how this kid is seeing this, and that's how this narrator's narrating it. And that watch gives that off, and that's what he says.
1: Exactly exactly you know,
0: so i wouldn't take the story without it um, and and that she never took it off is really <laughs> key you know these are ortho- an orthodox and orthodox couples she's bald but she's got wigs mm-hmm. you know it's just just a wonderfully vivid scene and you know nobody who reads murderers ever forgets it so, and they, they may actually forget what happens because what happens is 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 dramatized in such economy it's, it's extraordinary how the, the the tragic moment of this story is 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 presented on the page, which is um, not indulged in. It's just, uh, you know, it just is
1: Some of the things I read about the story today earlier today do not even mention Arnold. Do not even mention what happened to Arnold. It's sort of like the boys get caught and they're sent away. No, no mention I, I find I just find that so interesting
0: yeah I mean you know it 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 uh I mean the story is more than what happens to Arnold but story is ever is is what happens to Arnold then right you know not right? yeah. I you, you know he fall you know he falls off you know and then that's where the title comes from because the rabbi shouts it out the window mm. and uh and 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 There they are. You know, the rabbi screamed, Melvin Bloom, Philip Leibowitz, Harold Cole, Melvin Bloom, as if our names screamed this way, naming us where we hung, smashed us into the brick. Notice that he doesn't yell Arnold's name. And, uh, you know, Arnold's 11. I mean, this is an incredibly brutal story. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not to be taken, yeah, Michael's isn't to be taken lightly, like, and this story is not to be taken lightly. And I think the ending of it is, is, um, extraordinary in a way that just, you can't see coming at all. And maybe that's the true surprise. Maybe that's what we leave out of this. Maybe we just let that ending be because I didn't, you don't see it coming. You don't see the, you don't see the movement towards something entirely different but but this is you know tragedies don't you drag them around with you but there's also other things happening in the world that's what happens in this story
1: don't you want to read the last two
0: paragraphs no that I said but I wouldn't but the 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 rabbi used his connections arrangements were made we were sent to a camp in New Jersey we hiked and played volleyball one day apropos of nothing Melvin came up to me and said, Little Arnold had been made of gold, and he, Melvin, of shit. I appreciated the sentiment, but to my mind, they were both made of shit. Harold Cohn never spoke again to either of us. The counselors in the camp were World War II veterans, introspective men. Some carried shrapnel in their bodies. One had a metal plate in his head. Whatever you said to them, they seemed to be thinking of something else, even when they answered. But step out of line and a plastic lanyard whistle, burning notice across your ass. At night, lying in the bunkhouse, I listened to owls and never before heard that sound the sound of darkness blooming, opening inside you like a mouth. This line, whatever you said to them, they seemed to be thinking of something else, even when they answered. You know, they saw Arnold fall off the roof. Other people saw other things. This is post World War II, you know. Yeah, and, uh, you know the story. It's not a war story, but in some ways, I think he, Michaels makes a makes an attempt here at the end to, to not indulge in the violence of what, what he what what his own characters experienced without acknowledging that it's it's not um, singular, or not unique to them. I guess I just want to quote one thing from Michaels in the Paris Review a few years ago. Ran a what they call the lost interview with Michaels. I don't know if you read it, but um, uh, it's great. Um, And I don't know how it got lost. I think it got lost because they didn't want to run it at the time. But anyway, he says, the short story is less obligated to tell a great big lie about life. And if anybody knew that or lived it, it's Michael's. And that's why he deserves a place in our lonely voice pantheon.
1: Leonard Michaels is the author of Cryptology and Murderers. Peter Orner is the author of seven books, including the story collection Maggie Brown and Others. His essay collection, Still No Word From You Notes in the Margin, was a finalist for the 2023 PEN America Penn Diamondstein Spielbogel Award for the Art of the Essay. He holds the Professorship in English and Creative Writing and is the Director of Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Texas Public Radio. Do you have a comment or question or a story suggestion? Send me an email at evette@tpr.org. At Jacob Prasadi composed the theme music for The Lonely Voice. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. Remember that you can now subscribe to The Lonely Voice wherever you find the best podcasts and thanks for listening.